1: During the pandemic, many of us started paying more attention to the country's broken healthcare system. Ava Kaufman, an investigative reporter at ProPublica, was no exception.
0: I looked into assisted living facilities and the plight of their residents during the pandemic and became interested in seeing what was going on in Los Angeles, uh, where I live, with the hospice boom here and realized that there was a much larger and, and longer and even nationwide story to tell about these practices and, and just how entrenched they become across the country. Since the
1: 1980s, end-of-life care, known as hospice, has been paid for by the government. These days, half of all Americans opt into hospice care at the end of their lives.
0: When done right, uh, hospice care is an amazing service and there's really nothing else like it in the healthcare system because you're receiving access not just to doctors and nurses, but also to social workers, to clergy of your denominational choice, to bereavement counselors to support not just you as a patient, but your family during the aftermath and the grieving process. And, you know, it's supposed to be a kind of whole-person-centered care. But
1: as Ava started investigating the industry, she noticed something. This palliative care service that was born out of a movement to give the sick a death with dignity was being taken over by private, for-profit companies.
0: I mean, what makes hospice so interesting in particular is that, you know, there's no other kind of, you know, charity movement. Um, Some people would say that it's kind of been so... um, so profitable, <laughs> so transformed into, into a profit center in the last 30 years. It's hard to think of any other um, comparisons of something that was, you know, previously all staffed by volunteers and is now, you know, described by some investors as quote unquote the hottest thing going.
1: These days, Ava describes hospice as a hot commodity that stands alone in the healthcare industry because of the sheer size of returns it generates. All too often, we put off learning about end-of-life care until we or a family member really need it. The taboo around talking about death—it makes it hard to face issues with hospice when they arise.
0: It's something that I heard even from uh, people who formerly worked at uh, Medicare, formerly worked in the government. That you know, no one really wants to talk or, or think about death. Um, no one wants to you know be seen as as limiting access to what is obviously an important um, service. And, you know, many families, because, you know, we live in a culture where death is taboo, um, where aging is something that we, you know, prefer to ignore until it's too late, you know, also don't really want to necessarily, you know, think or or research hospice until it's kind of far too late.
1: And when so many of us are avoiding discussing the details of -of end-of-life care, That leaves lots of room for unscrupulous players to take advantage of the system.
0: It was absolutely uh, surprising to see the various schemes that people had come up with. And, you know, there's a lot of creativity and imagination in fraud. Um, You know, I see that with scare quotes, but, you know, the the kinds of ways that people find to exploit these benefits and to to trick people into joining the service um, was absolutely astounding.
1: Is there one story of a person that really struck you, that was caught in the system and had some outcomes that really affected their lives?
0: One really striking case, and these cases sound um, sensational and unbelievable in that they're so um, upsetting, but they're actually far too common. and um, you know we chose them because they were representative, was uh, the the story of uh, Carl Evans who uh was a seventy seven year old former janitor who was living in orange county uh california and uh was placed into hospice care and uh actually you know over medicated um to uh restrain him he he didn't necessarily need the care he was being given and um by the end when he did get you know so sick and and was actually you know crying out um in pain, he ended up, um, you know, kind of switching hospices, and, and that hospice didn't show up. And so he was kind of a, a victim on, um, on both ends of uh, uh, over-treatment and, and over-medication um, in ways that uh, the family alleged were, uh, you know, suspicious and, you know, inhumane. And uh, on the other end of, you know, becoming um, so sick that he needed uh, intensive treatment uh, and the hospice not being available to, to provide it at that time.
1: What happened to Carl Evans?
0: Carl Evans died.
1: Today on the show, death comes for us all. So why is the care we get in the final stage of life so unregulated and plagued by so many scams? I'm Mary C. Curtis filling in for Mary Harris. Stick around. For the ones who get it done. So who exactly is hospice care intended for? What kind of patients are meant to be receiving this kind of care?
0: Under the current design of the system, hospice is intended for patients who have six months or less to live They've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and the doctor is prognosticating that should that terminal illness kind of run its normal course, they will have less than six months to live. And
1: my understanding is that Medicare essentially contracts this work of caring for these patients out to hospices.
0: Yeah, so... um, the way a hospice works is that they're paid a set rate per patient per day, regardless of how much help they deliver. And most hospices are receiving 95% of their payments, if not more, from uh, Medicare. So Medicare is the kind of biggest um, payer for hospice services, uh, and both for-profit and non-profit providers uh, depend on Medicare to kind of cover the, ho- the costs of their services. Hospices are then free to, to use or determine or, or, you know, figure out how that you know fixed rate per patient per day covers their various um, operating costs, and so you can start to see how with the payments meted out every day, regardless of whether you're providing services, hospice could be an appealing area for unsavory actors who perhaps aren't trying to provide the highest quality level of care.
1: So, how do you go about opening it? Do you have to be a doctor or have some kind of training or license?
0: There's very little training or backgrounding required to open a hospice in most states. In California, for instance, where I'm based, anyone can open a hospice. And uh, it's been shown that even people with uh, criminal backgrounds or who are using fictitious medical identities are doing so with abandon.
1: So what I'm hearing is that there's this perfect storm you've set up. You have an industry with the potential for really high returns, not too much oversight about who gets into this business. And you found in your piece that this perfect storm is made for the proliferation of a lot of scam hospices. Can you give me a sense of just how they go about operating?
0: So there's a few different types of scams, but one of them, and I should say that this is less a scam than just a kind of incentive that's rewarded by the current system that we've been describing, is to uh, solicit to patients directly. So instead of having uh, a doctor refer a group or population of patients whom he thinks are eligible for the service, you would instead be going door to door, finding patients who you know, may be sick or or may have kind of chronic health needs, but don't necessarily need hospice care and pitching the service to them as free home health and employees on the on the sales side. And I should note that you know across the industry, they often have these euphemistic names. They're called community liaisons or, Uh, community educators or provider referral managers, but their real job is uh, to bring in bodies, uh, will be incentivized with bonuses, with uh, perks. Their job performance is tied to how many people they bring in. And that's not necessarily just exclusive to the sales side. Um, I've seen documents in recent lawsuits from just a year or two ago that are also uh, encouraging um, nurses and, and giving out bonuses to them as well. When they're able to, you know, bring in more patients, and so there's a culture of, you know, what some hospices call it, "quote unquote," everyone sells, <sighs> which is perhaps not the phrase you would want to hear from a long-term care provider. And
1: it sounds like, just like in any sales job, if you don't hit your mark, you could get fired.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, true at at every provider, but time and again, um, that is often the charge in these whistleblower cases. Not only where marketers incentivized to bring in patients, but they were under direct pressure uh, to do so.
1: According to Ava, this pressure pushes hospice reps to use all kinds of unsavory tactics to try and find new patients to enroll. Some people she spoke with look for wheelchair ramps or go door to door in a Meals on Wheels van to gain people's trust. When they succeed, there are rewards like cash bonuses. When they fail there's a possibility they could be let go. In an effort to increase enrollment, some hospices even resort to enrolling people without their consent or knowledge. Being enrolled in hospice like that can cause major issues for people who are genuinely sick, but not dying. That's because hospice enrollment requires people to give up curative care in the name of palliative care. Being enrolled in hospice makes you ineligible to receive life-saving treatment like chemotherapy or an organ transplant. Even in cases where people catch on, once a hospice has you on its books, it can be hard to get off.
0: When you get wise to this ruse and call to be disenrolled from the service, uh, they might not pick up the phone. And so getting untangled from this web is really uh, difficult. That, that untangling can take weeks and in some cases months. But the, you know, the dark side of this is that if you don't need hospice and you end up on hospice, you're also losing access uh, to treatments and to medical services that you might really need.
1: Have you got a sense of what percentage of hospices in the U.S. are legit versus operating under this profiteering model?
0: Well, we know that, you know, 73% of, of hospices are are for profit. Of course, not all of them are profiteering, but there are, you know, clear indicators when, you know, a hospice isn't even participating in, you know, the kind of basic standards of care. It's pretty clear if you have a hospice that is only signing up a few patients or is signing up patients really quickly, um, reaching their maximum billing limit, uh, dumping those patients and moving them over. Um, Another really suspicious indicator is if you are owning, you know, several hospices at once, why, you know, there's usually no good reason to open up 13 hospices before you've even gotten your first one um, mm. off the ground.
1: You also use that word dumping. Could you talk a little bit more about what that is? Because it's a pretty appalling term. What does it mean to dump a hospice patient?
0: Yeah, a dump, a dump I should have clarified is, is just the same thing as a discharge. So while Medicare, um, you know, allows that patients might not die within their six month prognosis, it does eventually cap the amount that a hospice is going to be paid per patient you know effectively it's it's being capped at a what translates into you know 180 days of of payment you know there's a few exceptions to that but that's the kind of general way that this kind of complicated payment formula works and so once you're exceeding that if a lot of your patients are living you know more than 50% are living past 6 months you start to kind of run into this Medicare reimbursement limit. And so then you might um, be incentivized or pressured um, for financial reasons to discharge patients, that is, um, you know, remove them from your hospice roles who aren't dying fast enough.
1: That's pretty cruel dumping, both the term and the practice.
0: Absolutely. And these discharges um, can be quite painful for families, you know, in, in the case of families who do, and patients who do need hospice, they're losing access to, Medical equipment, uh, like a hospital-grade bed, medications, diapers, you know, nursing care, um, light housekeeping, uh, all kinds of things they might really need and, and that their caregivers also need help with. And uh, even for patients who don't necessarily um, you know, strictly need hospice, you know, they've been, their medications have been covered um, that they might not have previously been able to afford, and, and now they're losing access to those as well. Here's
1: the thing, though even in cases where a patient genuinely needs hospice care. When the motive is maximizing profits, that care tends to be not so good. A government review of inspection reports found that many hospices have serious deficiencies, such as failures to train staff, manage pain, and treat bed sores. Sometimes patients are left on their own for days at a time.
0: There have been, you know, a lot of kind of quality of care concerns and, and metrics over the years. And there's been uh, reports, both journalistic and from government watchdogs over the years that detail uh, some of these horror stories of people who need care and, and the, the vision of care that hospice promises at the end of life and are completely neglected and abandoned uh, at the time in which you know, they would most need their symptoms and their pain to be under control.
1: When we come back, is there any way to hold nefarious hospices accountable? Let's talk about what happens when someone tries to hold a scam hospice company accountable. Tell me about the two whistleblowers that you spoke with for your story, Marsha Farmer and Don Richardson, I believe, and the company that they worked for.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the history of the company that uh, Marsha Farmer and Don worked for in many ways emblematizes, you know, some of the shifts that we've seen in the hospice industry over the years. Their, you know, smaller hospice chain was merged with another mid-sized chain called AceraCare. And uh, a few years after that, a Sarah care gets uh, bought by a private equity company, kind of foreshadowing the growth of, of private equity as well in the hospice space. And through these transformations, the, the pressure to bring in more and more patients continues to grow. And they're not the only um, staff members at the company to feel that the pressure makes them uncomfortable, uh, makes them uneasy and makes them question whether the profession they originally had gotten into as a sort of calling uh, has perhaps lost its way. And it's not until she hears about this whistleblower law and uh, talks to her close confidant at work about it that they realize there might kind of be uh, another way out, which is, you know, not just to quit their jobs in protest, but to try to hold the company accountable for what they believed uh, was not just unethical or uncomfortable behavior, uh, but behavior that might also be uh, illegal.
1: The whistleblower law that Marsha Farmer heard about is the False Claims Act under which hospices can be prosecuted for enrolling in eligible patients and then billing Medicare. On the local news, Marsha had seen that two nurses at a nearby hospice company had accused their employer of stealing millions in taxpayer dollars. The hospice settled a lawsuit with the Justice Department for nearly $25 million, and the nurses, as whistleblowers, had received a share of the sum, $4.9 million to be exact. Marsha realized that Assara care was likely liable for the same things. So she and Dawn, the other nurse, called up a lawyer and filed a complaint accusing a Sarah care of Medicare fraud. It wasn't long before the Department of Justice got involved. And then things started to go sideways.
0: Most whistleblower cases never go to trial because the amount that you would have to pay just to fund the litigation is, you know, often exceeds the amount that you would have to pay in fines. And it also carries a much, much greater threat, which is that you could be excluded permanently from the Medicare program. I mean, that's, that's the death penalty if you're a business. And, you know, in a kind of um, surprising move, I think, to everyone involved in the case, and, and part of what made the case uh, so compelling from a journalistic perspective, is that it goes to trial.
1: At the beginning, it seemed like the government's case was strong. A palliative care expert had gone over a sample of a care's records and found that around half of the patients in the sample were ineligible for some or all of the hospice care they'd received. But then, according to Ava, the judge on the case made a strange move. At the request of Care, she separated the trial into two separate proceedings. The first one would decide whether Care had made false claims about their patient's eligibility for hospice. The second would determine whether the company had intentionally made those false claims. This significantly constrained the evidence that prosecutors could bring, essentially kneecapping their case.
0: And so what you end up with is this battle of experts. You have the government's expert witness and you have the defense team's expert witness arguing about uh, you know, whether the medical records in this sample of patients did support or did not support The terminal diagnosis that the person would have six months or less to live. At the end of that, the jury rules overwhelmingly in the government's favor. But the judge says that she's actually going to uh, grant a new trial because, you know, a kind of disagreement between just two medical experts is not enough, even though the case had kind of been limited and set up in a way to only allow for that disagreement between two medical experts. And then a few days later, I guess, this is one of the first twists in a kind of second twist after, after the case is separated in this way in a surprising turn of events, she um, grants summary judgment, um, You know, effectively kind of tossing out the lawsuit in favor of a Sarah Care saying that, you know, this disagreement between experts and having the government just hire someone to kind of second guess a hospice's doctor is, uh, you know, insufficient to prove that a claim is actually false. And so you can see how this case becomes, you know, quite pivotal for the hospice industry, which, you know, celebrates the potential precedent of no longer allowing the government to simply, you know, second-guess the judgment of its physicians.
1: The last twist in this bizarre case comes a few months later. Someone began reaching out to companies that were at the center of lawsuits, like Dawn and Marsha's, offering to sell them the names of whistleblowers and details about their complaints. Turns out it was the Department of Justice's own lawyer, the one who prosecuted Dawn and Marsh's case.
0: He's so disillusioned that he starts to attempt to sell some of these secret sealed complaints from you know, whistleblowers, uh, not just hospice whistleblowers, these tips that they've shared with the department. And uh, I think that was something that you know no one saw coming, but in a way spoke to um, just how, how bizarre and unusual the case had turned out, um, you know, having this overwhelming um, ruling for, from a jury and, and having that um, thrown out, he said, um, kind of led him to question, you know, does the system even work?
1: And again, I want to emphasize that even when these hospices face legal trouble, it often doesn't stop them from settling a suit or waiting out an audit and then doing the whole thing all over again.
0: Yeah, right now there's, um, you know, unless you are um, banned from Medicare, which is a uh, exceedingly, I mean, vanishingly rare, I should say, proposition, uh, there's nothing to stop you from shutting down, keeping whatever money you've earned and transferring your patients to a new one under a a new license and uh, starting your, your billing all over again.
1: There are potential solutions to this proliferation of scam hospices. Some states have begun requiring that new hospices produce a certificate of need, basically force them to prove that there's a demand for their services before they can open. California and Mississippi have both placed moratoriums on the opening of new hospices while they try to sort this issue out. In the meantime, though, people are still dying and still in need of good end-of-life care. So I ask, Ava, how you can tell whether a business is going to provide that or not?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And we've just also put out a guide um, to that end to help people research their hospice provider and ask them the right questions. I would say the three uh, big things are they can go on this website that you know Medicare runs called Hospice Compare. I don't think it's, it's the easiest to navigate website, and it doesn't have all of the data, but it is a starting point where you can compare survey rates and, you know, you can definitely see if, if a hospice has shared or is making data available on, you know, how many of its patients are being checked for pain or frequency of visits. I mean, you can see some of that, that data and that's really important. The other thing that they can do is ask people they know. I mean, most people are, are touched by and, and need to use hospice in, in some way for their, you know advice and see what your friends and medical professions, um, you know, see, see what they've liked and and see which, you know, hospice nurses, you know, they can't stop talking about because they had, you know, such an amazing experience and uh, felt like their loved one was, you know, so well taken care of. And the last thing is ask your hospice questions. Um, Don't be shy to interview them and ask how often their nurses, you know, stop by or would be expected to stop by given your loved one's needs. You know, does this hospice have an inpatient facility that your loved one can go to um, if their needs become out of control? Um, Many hospices don't look into if possible. I mean, this is, you know, again, uh, it's hard that, you know, families have to do this homework. But if you can find out who owns the hospice and, you know, what motivated them to go into the field, that could be really helpful. Um, Is the hospice a nonprofit or for profit? How long has it been around if it's just opened six months ago? Why did it open? Was there a need in this community? I could go on and on, but all of those questions, I think, would make a really big difference.
1: Thank you, Ava Kaufman, for coming on What Next? Thank you. Ava Kaufman is an investigative reporter for ProPublica. After we spoke with Ava, members of Congress called on the Department of Health and Human Services to immediately investigate the situation she highlighted in her reporting. In a letter to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, members wrote that, Medicare fraud cannot be tolerated, especially when it is being perpetrated on our nation's most vulnerable patients. And in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul is considering legislation that would outlaw the creation of new for-profit hospice providers in the state. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a lot of help from Anna Phillips, Jarrett Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Sam Kim. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary C. Curtis columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Mary Harris will be back in this feed tomorrow. Talk to you then.